0: Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts Lucy Davis.
1: I'm Benjamin Holden. So we have another guest with us on this week's episode of the Not So Fit Couple podcast. I usually refer to him as Fergus the Freak, which I'm sure he will. Huh. I, I, I didn't know that to be fair. It's behind your back, won't you? Think? And it'll be for good reason. Of, uh, I will explain a little bit more about that because he's an absolute psychopath when it comes to endurance events and some of the, the accolades that he's built up over the last couple of years which i'm gonna let fergus explain a little bit more about as we go through the podcast but if you don't mind fergus in a nutshell sell yourself to the people the listeners okay and then i'll I'll dive in and scratch the surface a little bit more <laughs> okay
2: okay i'll be as concise as i can so fergus crawley i'd probably class myself as a hybrid athlete which is a bit of a vague term but it basically means i balance strength and endurance concurrently as well as focusing on just extracting the lessons from my own personal mental health story and placing that within the context of my training my existence what I do now etc (laughs) etc alongside that I've got an online coaching business a public speaking business and I train probably about 14 to 20 hours a week across strength and endurance training and go from anything from 100 mile races to powerlifting meets to iron distance extreme triathlons and kind of everything in between
1: mm-hmm. but i'll explain more why i do yeah. that because that sounds pretty stupid at this point <laughs> <laughs> so that's it's obviously like a really hard thing to balance and something that me and lucy have been speaking about a lot a lot over the last couple of weeks of the podcast is balancing that strength building muscle tissue and the long endurance events if you were a top trump card how would you Ooh. how would you rank your kind of attributes <laughs>
2: But
0: what are the attributes? Okay, so you've got yeah, yeah. strength, uh-huh. speed, power, and endurance.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, Strength. Okay.
2: I think top end, I'll define top end strength as like just maximal power output, yeah, yeah. Ma- maximum strength output. Power will be more, what's that, sort of like jumping? Like and,
0: explosive. Uh, yeah, 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 all that
2: stuff. And then speed will go, let's just discount the 100 meters because I'd be really bad there. We'll go, we'll go 200 <laughs> meters and up. Uh Strength probably relative to my body weight, 85. I don't know what 99 is. If Larry, was, Larry Wheels is 99, I'd probably, yeah. be, I'd probably yeah. be 75. Um, endurance, probably about 75 as well. But I think having those two in that equal range is probably where the challenge yeah. really is. Mm-hmm. Power, honestly, don't know. I can jump high, but my upper body power is pathetic. I'm like a pear from the ground <laughs> upwards. <laughs> I'm, I'm com- completely lower body
1: dominant. <laughs> See, that's, that's interesting because most... Guys are usually like a fucking Dorito. I'm the anti bro. I'm the anti bro. Yeah. Anti-bro. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, um,
2: I just, just kind of like started squatting frequently and then my legs blew up. I and mean, then I've, I've not really had to do that much volume since then to maintain my strength or size in my lower body. If I do too much volume, my ass just becomes untenable for clothing. <laughs> so I try and avoid too many split squats, but then I can do as much volume as I want upper back, pecs and stuff. Nothing. Really? Nothing. So I've just played to my strengths and then. Power, yeah, power, I don't know, 50 to 75 range, I'd say. And what was the last one? Speed. Speed, oh dear. I guess
0: potentially not speed for you, more so distance.
2: Because um, you
0: can cycle and run yeah. for a very
2: long time. So I think the fastest I've done anything with context is a 458 mile at 208 pounds body weight, I think. A uh, run? Yeah, so that was four
0: fifty eight.
2: Yeah, four fifty. That was last last July. Under
0: five minutes.
2: Yeah, yeah. That was the, that was the same day as a five hundred pound squat. So that was that big level one CrossFit spoken yeah, about for years and years. Um, so that four fifty eight miles like the fastest objective running thing I've covered. But I've also ran a hundred miles in twenty two hours and fourteen minutes. So there's that kind of like broad scale. But if you put me on a track against somebody that can run hundred meters competently, I'd look like a sort of fish out of water. I think. <laughs>
1: 100 That's miles is incredible. absolutely crazy, by the way. But
0: it's like you're you saying that is the definition of high hy- hybrid athlete. You can run 100 miles. You can. Squ- what was your squat when you did the 500 pound squat?
2: Yeah, 501 pounds. Same and day, as sub five mile. Yeah.
0: You just don't think those two things go hand in hand, but they oh, absolutely they fucking do. don't. Well, they, yeah, they, they're not supposed to <laughs> go together. It, it, it's
2: more like I know that they don't, and I'm not going to argue that they do. But it's how do you? I, like I'm not elite in either of those things Uh so as soon as I put my ego to bed being like I'm not going to be best of the best in one thing because my logic is unless you're trained to be the best in the world at one discipline why end yourself and put yourself in the bin over and over again and stop yourself from doing the things that you enjoy Mm. to not be the best why would you not broaden your training horizons broaden the things that you enjoy so that you can be better at more things rather than above average in in one but at the disservice of others and Mm -hmm. the powerlifting was sort of how I got there because I was powerlifting competitively for four to five years did my last competition in 2017 I just finished it I was like that didn't really give me much yeah like cool I've I've squatted benched and deadlifted more than I ever have but I didn't get much of a buzz off it but up until that point I hadn't been playing golf on Saturdays because I knew I had heavy squats on Mondays (laughs) I, I enjoy playing golf yeah and I was like nah because I was worried about having 10,000 steps in my legs before heavy squats on the Monday. For a sport that I wasn't at that stage even that good at in the grand scheme of things, that I didn't care about that much, but it was pure ego being like, I want to make sure I get the best out of my strength work. So just tapered back everything around that. Whereas now it's a much more holistic. What do I enjoy doing? I enjoy cycling, swimming, running, hills, lifting. I enjoy sort of Connie style stuff. I enjoy real 10-minute park up a deck chair, put on a pair of knee wraps and just absolutely send it sort of squats. Mm-hmm. And I also enjoy track work, so I do them all. And it's not—it's not, it's not like—it's not like I aim to be the best at all of them at once. I go through ebbs and flows of peaking certain elements, troughing certain elements, put, going into maintenance on certain bits, but doing enough maintenance work as I go so that I'm conscious of what direction I'm going. It's very goal-oriented. You can't just sort of yolo it and just think I'm going to be the best at everything because that doesn't work. You'll be tanked. You'll overtrain. You won't recover. So you need to be specialist in terms of what am I training for at this moment? How do I focus on that, and what does what do I scale back so that I can keep that up? But acknowledging that that short term scale back will actually pay further dividends in the future because we all know like if you've built loads of strength, you don't need that much volume to maintain it, mm-hmm. but you need a lot more volume to actually grow it, and that's what I've realised with my strength work. I was fighting like mad to gain two and a half kilos on my squat, and my deadlift towards the end of my powerlifting. I don't want to say career, but the period of time in which I was powerlifting. Whereas now, I don't need to do that much volume to be able to stick around sort of the 220 mark on squat, 220 mark on deadlift, and a bench is irrelevant, that's so 2012. But <laughs> just like, it it doesn't, if I want to increase it, I obviously invert that and focus a bit more mm-hmm. on the volume there. But I can maintain, as long as I'm sensible and let my ego Just dissipate because if I think, oh, I want to be stronger, I want to be stronger, I'll do too much and then my my running will pay the price, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very fine balancing act, but it's, we'll go into it a bit more about the methodology side of things, how I approach it. But it all comes down to the fact I do the things that I enjoy and I acknowledge that they don't speak to one another physiologically. But that doesn't mean that you can't figure a way to develop yourself Mm -hmm. slowly and both of them at the same time. But it's not, it's not optimal but it can be done to a certain level. So let, let's let say you've got 100% capacity and you can give 50% to each. All that means is you've got to be more selective and specific in what you devote that 50% to. You're pushing a little slower. Your progress might be a little slower, but you're doing two things that you enjoy at the same time, which in my mind is better than putting all your eggs in the basket of one thing and not necessarily doing all the things that you enjoy on a daily basis.
1: Depends what your end goal is as well. This, this debate I've had a couple of times with, People like Greg Duchette, who's commented on or done review videos on uh, Nick Bear's videos, yep. who's posted videos about building muscle and improving your run time, and and Greg D- Duchette's criticism always is that you you can't be good at both, or you can't be best at both, because you're always going to do jack four trades. But that's coming from a a very much a bodybuilder's perspective, like he's looking at what's optimal for a certain sort of attribute or a certain outcome. And and most people aren't looking for that. Let's be honest, most people aren't bodybuilders. So it's not it's not always relevant to the everyday person. And th- the same with, uh, this is probably controversial, like if you want to be good at something, you don't have balance. Like yeah. if you want to be the best in the world at something, you don't have balance. But for example, most of our listeners aren't looking to be the best in the world at something. They're probably looking for a challenge. They want to do something different. And they want to get the enjoyment out of doing multiple activities which is why we set up the last program that we're doing where we're getting all members to build up to a 10k charity run yeah and loads of them are absolutely loving it because they've not run ran for a long time and to be honest neither have we have we but the 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 thing that i've really got out of it is like i I love lifting i enjoy lifting but i also get a, a massive buzz and that high from running as well and that's having them both together is like way better than just having the one so you go look at like what you're getting out of it at the end of the day as well. I think for me, even like not just my physical health my mental health have been so much better since I've been running. Because it's not like going to the gym, I'll bang out a couple of sets of bench press and I'll be like fucking around on my phone for a little bit. It's like if I start fucking around on my phone when I'm running, I'm running to a lamppost or running for a, a load of dog shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Exactly.
0: I also think with running, like I'm a very competitive person and I've got that from swimming. I I swam competitively, but I just swam like for 10 years. So I'm super competitive. The one thing that I love about running is you can, you can try and always improve in different ways where it's like a five, like I really want to go sub 40 for a 10 K and that would be like an amazing goal. But then I want to do a marathon. And then in two years I want to do an Ironman because it can just keep going. And that, I don't know for me that's so exciting than just I'm just going to go to the gym and I don't know why but it's having that mixture of both and it, people always say to us how are you building muscle and running and not losing muscle and it's kind of like you've just got to, like you said find that balance and I guess take maybe a slight hit on building optimal muscle I'm not that bothered run a 10k under 40 sound do both
2: Exactly, exactly. And I think that the key element there is that you've specified a goal and you've actually, you've kind of adjusted everything around it. But I think the equivalent is that you've got all these little PBs within these different disciplines, which is why triathlons are fantastic because you've got three things you can work on concurrently. But triathletes get burnt out and think, why am I doing this anymore? Because they've probably exhausted all the options. It's like volume PBs in the gym. When I see powerlifters being like, oh, this is my best set of 15, like, who cares? Why? Like you're obviously looking for a reason to justify doing sets of fifteen mm-hmm. to like apply a metric to. I've squatted 132 and kilos fifteen when it was previous PB of 130. Like to me, that's just not as exciting a metric as developing across the board. But the key point for the individual there is that we want to attach metrics to improvement, and the best way to do that across things is by doing more things, more new things. And the best thing about trying new things, like the run with your your current program is that people progress quickly. That means that they'll learn, do I enjoy this? Where does it fit in my overall lifestyle? Actually, am I getting a buzz from seeing my 5K go from uh, 25 minutes to 24 minutes? Actually, maybe I'll try 10K and do it in this time. And then you've got different distances, you've got different paces, you've got different sessions you can PB in regularly. And that's why we all train, generally speaking, isn't it? Because we want those little micro wins over time, which Mm -hmm. means that we feel more in control in our day-to-day lives. And it means you can be competitive with yourself in so many different ways. And then if you want to be, you can be competitive against others. But I think it might just be stagnancy for some people. Like, I mean, I've been, I have been—I was lifting for six, seven years before I decided that I was actually a bit sick of just doing that. Mm-hmm. But then again, I know people that have just been running for six, seven years that are now are lifting a little bit more. And maybe they've actually decided, you know what, I'm going to do some time on the bike and they might get into triathlons. But it seems like if you were completely... Single, single dimensional in the way that you train for an extended period of time you will eventually get bored of it unless it's the thing that you are born to do Yeah. and if you're just training because you enjoy it and you're competing against yourself then why not broaden those training horizons and look for more quick wins low hanging fruits so that you feel good about yourself because mm-hmm. anyone that lifts now can go out and run their first 5k it might take them 40 minutes but the following week might take them 38 minutes and that is a tangible bit of progress that means that they've succeeded immediately which is in my mind,
1: a good thing. You know what's interesting? I was speaking to our physio about this a week, Dave, and we were speaking about what it is easier to transfer from, i.e., like if you've been weight training for a long time, you've built muscle tissue, you've been in strength training, to then go in and do the endurance based events or the opposing. And although they're like very subjective, we obviously he he was saying that it's obviously easy to go from what we're doing to to doing yeah. running. Doing, yeah, doing I completely agree. And yeah. I, I mean, I would agree as well because it's from what I've noticed straight away is obviously it's way easier to get better at running, and in, and and I think the results are quicker. I you can get better quicker within that block, whereas it takes fucking years to build muscle tissue. Yeah, like it's a ball like to 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 cumulatively get bigger or get stronger over that time period, whereas Runnings, very different. But I suppose there's there's different elements to the isn't as well. And this is where it's weird because even me and Lucy, like sh- over the past having like six months we've been running. You're better at like you little smash me in a ten k. I would arguably say I'm better at like five k. But then yeah, I think like I'm also better like when we go even longer, long di- like thirty k. I reckon I've run but quicker Absolutely than you. Not. Okay, we'll see.
0: I could do a marathon way quicker than you. You couldn't. And I do a half no, marathon couldn't. way quicker than you.
1: You could not. We'll see. Fergus is going to be the judge. Yeah, I'm fine. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Vegas you, you,
0: but I think I I have that capacity from 10 years of swimming, like the lung capacity to just keep running. It's why I can just do like...
2: I think as well, the 10 years of training will give you different psychological benefits mm. that might give an edge over that sort of distance with yourself. But okay. the 5 I, I bet
1: you a grand now. <laughs> I bet you a grand. Oh. Put, have you all that confident? For what?
0: To beat you in a marathon?
1: Yeah, I bet you a grand.
0: I think I could hold a five-minute pace.
1: Okay. Five-minute carries. F- Fergus, Fergus is going to pace us. It's 30, about 30, 3.30, Okay, ish okay, re- it, it We're going to do a YouTube 10. video. Fergus is going to pace it, and I bet you a grand I beat you. Okay. Okay. Well, there we are. There we go. We, we just Ben's need done. a date. We just need a date. <laughs> we put the date in the books.
2: But I think um, the endurance side from your training will be... Probably potentially give you the edge psychologically in terms of how you prepare for it. But the reason you might be better over 5K is because you've got maybe a little bit more of that fight mentality that comes from being under a really heavy barbell, really heavy hack squat. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I agree with you in your physio that the transition from strength into endurance is easier because you can one, hold on to the movement patterns, you can hold on to the muscle, you can hold on to the adaptation. You've got an understanding of when to really graft because you, if you've got a 1RM on your back and you get to a midpoint and you're like oh my god what do I do now you've got a decision don't you you've got Mm -hmm. that split second decision do I just sack this off or do I actually fight through this and it hurts it hurts briefly but that fight mentality will help you when you're faced with your 3k into a 5k and you're like right this sucks I've got 2 kilometers left could I just say it wasn't my day could I just say it was a bit windy? Could I just say my nutrition wasn't right and you back out? But Because you've developed that fight mentality, mm-hmm. you push on. Whereas those that are pure endurance might not necessarily have that. And that's where weight training can be really beneficial for them and vice versa. So I think it just depends on the psychological benefits that come from both sides of the training. And that's why I think actually, to some degree, as a recreational athlete, they speak to one another a lot more than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about pure top-end performance, obviously it's suboptimal. But then it comes down to what are your individual goals. Do you yeah. want? Do you want to be able to run sub four-hour marathons and be strong and jacked? You can do that. No, no problem. Do you want to get the UK marathon record at London as well as squatting two hundred kilos? You can't do that. Yeah, because you can't actually push human physiology that far whilst balancing a concurrent goal. But it's all down to goal setting, which is the sort of tiering we look at. Johnny, my coach, and I. it comes to us as individuals and our athletes is goal setting first then we sort of analyze the overall stresses that are in a person's lifestyle and existence what do they need to manage we're then basically almost like louis simmons with conjugate and um the sort of power side things where you're working to a relative max each day you're working to a relative output each day so we're aiming to get the best out of a limited percentage in each discipline throughout the week which might well mean that the overall volume is reduced. The overall intensity is reduced, and we just incrementally build over time to the point where they're most effective in that discipline. And then we just analyze what works well, what doesn't work as well, and then build from there. Mm-hmm. But it's just a case of it's a case of setting those goals first, working backwards, trial and error. What works well, what doesn't work well for the individual, and then moving forward.
1: Um, th- the one thing I was going to ask you about, mate, is how did it feel to do the hundred miles? Like we had Nick. Yep. on the other week and like he's yep. a f- fucking animal to say the least yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did he cover the, I can't remember his actual I mileage it's but it was ridiculous. the equivalent to two marathons a day so running like 12 hours a day this for is most recent most recent can't actually remember the mileage but it was two and a half thousand yeah but what are you doing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do
1: you know what, one of the things that he said when he was doing the, for example long distances like in one chunk is that he would hallucinate did you ever get that at any point when you're doing it i think 24 hours is the point where you start to go a bit loopy is it to be fair yeah
2: and i was just just shy of it on that but it's kind of down to sleep deprivation cumulative fatigue and actually how you your body reacts to being under that much stress because hallucinations for johnny my coach for example they've started for him about 18 hours I've only ever had a few, it's been, when I was on the turbo trainer for more than 24 hours, that's where I started to sort of see things in my shadow. I'm like, (laughs) well, that wasn't there. Um, But the, what actually started to make me second guess myself was I was, so for context, I ran from Loch Lomond in Scotland to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. which was 90, it worked out 96 miles. The reason I did it was 94 miles for the 94 male suicides a week in the UK. So this was my November campaign in 2019, the third of three challenges that month. And then when I got to the, I actually got into Murrayfield at 95 and a half miles. And then after I'd done a bit of a talk at Murrayfield, cracked on to finish the 100. So once you get to Glasgow, it's 56 miles through to Edinburgh of just one canal. So what did you say
1: and you stopped to do a talk?
2: Yeah, there was, there was an event that I'd organised for November at the stadium that I sort of popped into to sort of say my piece to. And there were a few charities speaking there that I'd arranged to speak to and then finished to 100 miles afterwards. Jesus Christ. Which, that, that, those final four miles were the hardest four miles of the I whole bet thing. I Because I completely switched off. I'd like been on the floor, I'd been warm, and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this again. <laughs> oh <my laughs> but it was um, the entire... There's a canal that runs from Glasgow to Edinburgh, and I'd, my, my practice run... Well, my final long training session for that ultra had been Glasgow to Edinburgh, starting at 10pm, purely starting at 10pm and self-supported for the simple reason that it was going to be miserable. I was going to be lonely. I wouldn't have a way of getting out easily. I had to carry all my food. I didn't have people sort of whispering in my ear, oh, you're doing great. Let's see how you get on. It was in the dark. It was in the cold. It was basically all the worst conditions that I might mm-hmm. face on the day itself. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to experience that myself. Ahead of time, so that any mistakes I could make were best made there, before I did it in the event itself. And I, I remember about 30, 40 miles into that practice run, there were like deer and foxes and things on the side of the canal. So I just saw it complete pitch black. I just saw these green eyes on the other side, and I started to think, are you hallucinating or are they there? And then I just kept seeing shadows run across me because when you're when you're running with a head torch, on in pitch darkness, you can you literally can't see anything other than the bubble the bubble you're in, which is miserable, like really, quite miserable, that was one of the main learnings from that practice run was just how psychologically tormenting it was, just being in a bubble of light for I think it took what did that take me? I think it was it was ten p m to, I got in it at like quarter past eight in the morning, so yeah, ten hours and fifteen minutes it was for the first 56 miles, and it came, it got light at about seven a m so that it was most of it was in the dark, yeah, and just that bubble effect really started to play in my mind like that was the first time i'd been. I was like sad, just sad and lonely at like four in the morning. Will you listen to music or not? No, I actually keep it as a trick up my sleeve. So I don't train with any music for my endurance stuff. I don't train for events. But if I'm ever in a real hole on events, I'll keep headphones as something to like bring me back up a little bit so that if I set off with them, I'm not, I've got, you know what I mean? I've got like more things I can rely upon to help bring me back from a negative psychological spiral. Because I mean, ultra running is ultimately just, this ebbing and flowing of you're feeling great, you're feeling dreadful, this hurts, that hurts, oh, and that doesn't hurt anymore, but this does. And it's just how you actually fight through those little mini battles that come across and how you pace yourself, how you fuel yourself and the decisions you make along the
1: way, the most important thing. That must have been horrible. Like even when I go to the toilet in the middle of the night, I have to put the light on and go in a bit of darkness for like 10 seconds, creeps me have of mind running for, for 10 hours. But I've I've noticed quite a few people do that who don't run with music on like, I think, don't think Nick ran with music on, did he? And who's the, who's the other guy who's does quite a lot of it? Is it something Bitter? Is it Nick Bitter? Oh, Zach
2: Bitter. Zach Bitter. Yeah, yeah. he's got the 100 mile world record. Has which he? Which is like, it's like 11 hours, 37 minutes. Absolutely disgusting. Mate, I think he held seven uh, seven fifteen minute miles for the entire ridiculous. thing. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: oh He he God. did some long events. I don't know, it was like something ridiculous, like how many marathons back to back. And he was doing like twelve fifty 50 marathons, just back to back to back to back. And I was yeah. like... That is absolutely insane. He's mad. He's absolutely mad. And you, the 100-mile world record was on a
2: track as well. It's at this like seven-day-long event over in the States where the track is just open for anybody to run as long as they want for the seven days. And there's some people that rock up on day one and leave on day seven having just spent those seven days just running as far as they can. I mean, it's... it's I mean, I say it's weird. It's probably something I'll end up doing in the future. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's like I, I know why they've got there because the psychological reward of finding yourself in a miserable, lonely hole of just being in a bubble of head torch light, knowing what that feels like and then actually making the decisions to keep going, get out the other side and be like, you know what, as bad as that felt, here I am. I've conquered that. Let's go again once you've rested and recovered and actually processed it. I've learned more about myself when I've been in those real, real black holes and ultra endurance events than I have from any sort of day-to-day stressors. And it's, it's something I'm putting myself in willingly, so I've always got the option to back out. Mm. But it's when you're faced with the the option, that's where the decisions are made. And where the decisions are made is where you actually build the resilience, the character building, the stuff that you can take from that training into your day-to-day life. I'm not saying, saying everyone should go out and run ultras, but that's why those metrics and those low-hanging fruits yeah. and those quick wins are so important because – you always feel like you're conquering yourself in some way. And if you build that momentum over time, when something gets chucked at that you feel actually knocks you back a little bit, you're much better prepared to just bat it off and carry on. And yeah, I've I've been, psychologically, I've been in some proper holes in endurance events. But now, it's it's not like I don't fall apart when they happen. Like I don't let myself spiral. Whereas previously, I'd start to catastrophize and think, oh God, if I feel like this now... And I'm only 20 miles in. I've got 35 miles left. There's no possible way I can do this. Mm. You should probably just stop now and save yourself for the actual event. And oh, you, do you have enough food? Is there too much weight in your back? And you just go mad inside your own yeah. head. Whereas now it's like, oh, this feels hard and it should. Why is that? Okay, well, you've got eight kilos of water and food on your back. You don't normally have that. It's dark. You're lonely. It's cold. It's about minus four degrees. You're on your own. You've been dreading this for three days. You've actually got inside your own head a little bit. What are we looking at here? You're probably overthinking it. Crack on. It'll probably calm down in a few miles. And then it does you go again so it's but that's only learned through experience yeah Mm. definitely and that's the main thing and um like i know i know ahead of big events now it's not like it's not like a fear it's more like an excitement it's an excitement to learn what i'm going to learn when i'm faced with those decisions which is explained horribly but i think think, you know what i mean no
0: no you have to put yourself in that situation to understand how you're going to feel in future situations
1: exactly exactly (laughs) talking about big events what was the. Also,
0: oh, uh, I just had one quick question about Ultra. Go ahead. Because I've asked you this and you've never knew to answer it.
2: And there's another bet coming.
0: Well, why would you answer? No, why would just the fuck would ask me? Here? No, so. <laughs> because we actually discussed this. So, you know, when people do like 250 mile events or 100 mile events, Yep. how do you know where you're going? Is it mapped out? <laughs> Has someone gone round 200, like Courtney Dewater yeah. Yeah, did 250 miles? And we watched her documentary and the whole time thinking, how the hell do you know where you go in all these mountains?
2: So there are, it depends on the race. So okay. some of them have everything naved out for you. Some of them are self-supported. So uh, there's a there's weird subcultures within ultra running. It's horrible forums on the internet full of bitter people, but... Why? Just people like to attach themselves to bitter corners of the internet, don't they? It's, it's like...
1: They the, the, in, what, in what
2: respect? So... It's like raw, raw with wraps, raw without wraps, raw with sleeves—the the oh, same okay. equivalent, all that stuff. Whereas with ultra running, it's like: did they do it supported? Did they do it self-supported? Was it self-navigated? Uh, did they have stop-offs? Did they stay in a tent or did they stay in a hotel? Like people like to add all these caveats to uh, records, and it's just miserable. So, yeah. for example, the Barclay Marathons. There's a, there's a documentary on Netflix. that's very much worth watching. That that is an exercise in a sadistic man's mind where people turn up to race. So you turn up to this gate in, I think it's Virginia somewhere, somewhere cold. And you run five marathon loops, but every year the course changes. So Uh. you don't actually know how far you're covering. It's around 45 K ish, but it can be up to 55. You're not allowed GPS. You need to go around the course and find a book and take your race number with a page from that book. You've got to navigate yourself and then you've got to get back to the loop. And then you go, Back the other way, and you go back the other way like this. And I mean, there's only like twenty. I don't actually know the exact figure. There's not many people that have done all five loops. You're so what? Lost? So what is that?
1: The only way that you figure
2: out how much distance you've done is by reaching the books. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you. You've just got. You've got instructions on how to find the books. You've got to navigate your way to get there. You've got to get. So the way that you prove you've gone the whole way around is by providing pages from the books that have been planted in the woods. It's it, it's mad. It's just, Sounds like
1: some Harry Potter Horcrux shit, that doesn't it? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah it's it, nice it's mad. Criminal. But the the guy the guy that runs it's called Laz. Uh, what's it? Lazarus Lake?
1: Lazarus. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and he just name. you just see him and you just see him with a big grin, telling all the athletes what's about to happen. And he's just there with his big southern drawl, being like, "You got to get these pages, and you got to do this." And he's just like, "You silly, silly people." But that's one way of doing it. But then there's like Badwater, which is 130 miles yeah. in uh, the Death Valley. That's just 130 miles down that road, Straight. go. Really? So there's no is that, the, is that the one Courtney like, doing what it?
0: No, David Goggins did that one. Ah. Yeah, he's
2: done that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No,
0: Courtney's did you, was really in the mountains. She, did
2: she do the Moab? Moab. Moab, she Moab did, yeah. So Mo, Moab, I think Moab's 200. Moab's marks somewhat, but I think you've got navigation elements built in. But again, it, it's pretty basic nav. Like yeah. you, you just need to be able to read contouring in a map. and, and yeah. But the main thing there is being mentally and cognitively switched on enough to not make mistakes. And that's where long training runs. That's what you, you're only gonna know how not to make mistakes when you're psychologically and cognitively challenged by mm-hmm. in training, being psychologically and cognitively challenged. So, her training, she'll have gone into it massively sleep deprived. She'll have yeah. done things yeah. in the dark and all that, whereby you're it's, you've got to approach it like you're in the military. Like you need to be under pressure when making decisions in training, so that when you're under pressure on race day you're not going to think, oh, that's five contours there rather than four, and you go off in the wrong direction, end up off a cliff. But some races are more now focused than others. Some are just, we've well, got to cover this distance in this time. Like Leadville 100, the one Nick Bear did, completely waymarked, no navigational element whatsoever. You've just got to show up and just co- get, get from checkpoint to checkpoint by the cut. Isn't there a
1: lot of elevation in that? Uh,
2: yeah, I think it was, th- was 9,000 or 13,000 feet. So I think there's about 2,800 or 3,000 meters across the 100 miles. Um, which is a fair whack, but I think there's two there's two ascents of a mountain about mile fifty or sixty that make it really quite tough. But then again, this is where ego comes into it, whereby so many recreational runners that have the mindset of oh, I'm just gonna work as hard as I can all the time or want to run as fast as they can up the hills and think, Oh, if I'm not if I'm walking, I'm I'm not working. Yeah. Whereas the hills are an opportunity to actually recover. Get walking a bit. sticks out on sort of people. Yeah, do. yeah. Walking sticks, you can recover, you can breathe, you can take a second to get some food on board because you're not moving fast enough to upset your GI tract, which means you can take some food yeah. on. And that's what, like in training, walking between sets might not be the worst thing in the world. So it just it all depends on how you approach it. But in my mind, ultra running and ultra endurance, endurance as a concept is a fantastic way to flatten your ego if you've got one.
1: Well, it's about that thing of you see it with loads of what train the small, don't you? Yeah, And you, you'll get some people who you'll see those quotes and stuff online or on Google where it's like balls the wall, bar and bending, all that kind of shit. And I yeah. guess that stuff still applies to lung endurance stuff as well. And you get some people who are all, all about ego and, and can't let that drop. The I'm sure if I've ever listened or read, read correctly, Courtney Dewar at some point over the past year or so tried 500 miles.
0: I don't know if they actually did it, though. No, she
1: didn't. She didn't do it. But she was, she was attempting to do it, but didn't do it. And then the other thing, just mentioning Goggins, his pull-up record got beat. Did it? I was by um, Cameron Haynes' son. Cameron Haynes' yeah. son, yeah. yeah, the yeah. Week on- of all the people to do it. I know. Fair. He's always yeah, going to be... An, if, you, if you're Cameron an Haynes' son, you're going to be an animal, aren't you? Yeah, so. yeah. That's, I'm, I'm glad
2: that happened, rather than Cameron Haynes' son being like a little sort of stay-at-home... A little twat, just, yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> not an absolute madman like Zad, but...
1: But he was he was texting like cheering him on and stuff as well on and sending him messages like yeah, yeah, yeah. Wa- wanting him to beat his pull-up record
2: but, but that, that's the beauty of it i, I think that's what i've enjoyed mo- that, well, that's why i enjoy not being too ingrained in any one of these categories circles like ironman triathletes you can get some pretty miserable people in there because it becomes a game of who has the most expensive bike who's going sub 10 if you're not going sub 10 why are you even here and there's this like weird bitterness that people develop when they're in o- their own little echo chamber or it's like, like the powerlifters at some gyms that are slapping chalk and taking ten minutes between sets. They look at the bodybuilders like, "Who are those dickheads?" Yeah. Every everybody wants to be in that sort of group, and that's why I feel like I'm I'm just at the surface level of all these things where I get to enjoy them for what they are, mm-hmm. rather than getting sucked into the sort of subcultures that somewhat can put people off them. And that that's my biggest issue with a lot of these things is that the barrier to entry for a lot of triathlons, marathons, even just just running distances, like there's people out there that will argue that a marathon isn't a marathon unless it's under four hours. I have seen messages from people ahead of time, people doing consecutive marathons on different days, and running clubs have said, we're not going to get involved because we th- feel this is insulting to the marathon distance. I'm like, what are you talking about? All, you're a running club that's meant to be engaging with people and bringing people into the sport, and you're preventing and raising the barrier to entry so that less people can actually feel mm. comfortable. That's the main thing, isn't it? It's, comfort is yeah. what put, puts people off taking the first step into new things. And in my mind, reducing that barrier is the best thing that we can do within the industry to actually allow people to try new things. And I think lockdown was actually quite good for that because people had options taken away from them. We know everybody that ran a big distance during lockdown or did something a bit different for them because they didn't have a choice. But that's because the barriers to entry were somewhat removed and people didn't need to place themselves in clubs or groups to be able to do these things. Whereas now, I just think people should think about what sounds exciting to them and just just give it a go, and not not really worry too much about what somebody's opinion on how you should
1: go about it is. Can I going to ask this question as well, and you kind of led into it. Obviously, you—I don't know how long it was ago or what it was ago—but you got sponsored by Gymshark. Yep. And this happens a lot, I think, in the in the general fitness industry, where people become very jealous of other people uh, once they receive like fair, certain accolades or sponsorships, or whatever it is, because they feel oh I've been doing this for so long and I've been working this hard and I've achieved this but I don't get sponsored or I don't get this and I don't get that and obviously you picked up the Gymshark sponsorship you're sitting here next to like 20 grand we of a bike um, purely so it doesn't get nicked out of the back <laughs> of the truck yeah. <laughs> Do, have you had have you been on the other end of that, that bitterness and received that kind of like judgmental negative attitude from some people within I suppose the realms of triathlon and, and endurance athlete events
2: not relevant to any, not relevant to anything sponsorship related or um, one or two things actually, but it's mostly when it's down to performance in that triathlon specifically doesn't have much of a concept of strength mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. People are, I mean, an Ironman, the concept of is something that most people know about, but triathletes think being strong is being able to sort of do a barbell squat like Triathlon strength conditioning is kind of lateral side hops for three sets of six. Like it's 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 power training. It's not top end biomechanically demanding training. So there've been a few things where people there's, I, there's forums online actually people can go look at. It's quite funny where apparently every kid in Texas can squat five hundred pounds. I didn't know that.
1: Well, they just pop out the womb
2: and take onto the fucking barbell. Apparently, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Have you not seen high school kids in Texas? Like, well, I must not have, Kev. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. it's just mad. It's just it, like. The, the logic people take, and th- this, is, this is why I enjoy doing what I'm doing, because I do these things because I enjoy them. And the 500-pound squat and sub-five-minute mile, for example, people are saying, well, a 500-pound squat for a powerlifter isn't that heavy, and a sub-five-minute mile isn't that, isn't, isn't that fast. And you're like, uh-huh. However, the whole point, you moron, is the fact that they've been done side by side. Yeah. And then they just can't see the past that fact. The same thing happened with the 1,200-pound tri- the total and the sub-12 Ironman on the same day. And then the Celt man, there was one or two people that, there was one guy that basically argued that because his mate hadn't been given an expensive bike to do it on and had done a better time than me and was quote-unquote built the same, for reference, he was 10, 11 kilos lighter than me and couldn't, couldn't squat his body weight. Yeah. So his logic of strength was built the same. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was arguing, he was like, oh maybe he should be sponsored by Jim Shark and get all this coverage and stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah. again, you've missed the point. But most people that have sort of gone with me on the accidental journey I've largely been on I've seen where it began, which is from charity challenges that yeah. I've done to try and raise awareness about my personal experience and the things that I want people to take away from that, so that they don't go through the same experience. And along the way, I found out I was very adaptable to new demands, endurance-wise. And then I've just found myself in this weird little niche where I just kind of have fun and yeah. get a bit creative with it. So it's, I think most people understand it. I'm not. I've not actually got to the stage where I don't have much visibility over con- or control over what I put out. like most people can do a bit more digging they don't we know what people on the internet like they they take things at surface value but there's um there's enough information out there so that you can get a pretty clear picture on the roadmap that has got me here so there's not been much jealousy but there's there's been performance there's been a lot of people trying to diminish and undermine performances up out there but at the end of the day i'm not winning anything Mm -hmm. i'm not there to win anything all i'm doing is trying to balance my top end strength with endurance alongside charity challenges to raise money for it and that's kind of it so people wanting to diminish that doesn't really bother me because it's not something that i'm in it for in the first place
1: i think that's a good thing with sponsorships anyway and like we spoke about before it's not it's not all oh, it's not the it's not anymore anyway the best people at said that get sponsored or the most shredded person that gets sponsored like it used to be back in the other days, it's good people who are doing good things and communicating with communities and and building people up or giving good education. So when you look at the credentials, so like say for example, you're looking to get sponsored, it's not about you put beating other athletes at better times to do that. Probably one of the best things to ask yourself as well is are you a cunt? Because if the answer is yes, you're probably not going to get sponsored anyway. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that is one of my
2: principal mantras in life and the more, the well, the more that Post-pandemic, Britain has unfolded. The more it seems, people generally are cunts, yeah. which is a shame. So, anyway, means that when you find people that aren't, it's quite pleasant. But it's exactly what you said, like Savello, the two bikes that are sitting to our left. The conversations I've had with the sponsorship guy in the UK has been like we've got hundreds of people that are a- excellent age group triathletes, excellent professional triathletes, but they're all they all fit the same mould. Mm-hmm. Whereas they were excited about the fact that I. I've got a partnership with Extreme Triathlon World Tour, which for context is basically Ironmans with mad elevation in remote parts of the world, um, in cold, generally, or really hot settings. So they're like Ironmans turned up a level. And I've done the Man in Scotland this year. I'm hoping to do the Man on the 5th of December, which is like a 28-hour journey to get there. It's that remote. Where is that? Pa- Chile. So it's in Patagonia. Yes. And what,
1: what would the temperatures be like there?
2: Uh, Quite variable, so the water could be 11 to 15 degrees, give or take, which is pretty cold, to be fair. pretty cold. Yeah, yeah, Um, but I'm, yeah, Scotland, I'm used to it by now, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then the bike's 180 kilometres with 2,400 metres of elevation, and then the run's 42.2k with 2,000, 1,900 metres of gain, so it's a big day out, but it could, like, wind is your enemy there but they they came on board because they saw the way that was approaching the Celtman which was here's basically some meathead sponsored by Gymshark who mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't fit a contemporary mold therefore by default this person might lower the ban- barrier to entry for other people mm. which we like because we don't have people doing that therefore yeah. we'd like to build a relationship with you over these extreme triathlons to get more people doing extreme triathlons because people are scared of doing them because they feel they don't fit the mold that allows them to do them but the more of them I do, and the more people that do that as a result of it, hopefully, the more people will realize actually, if I decide I want to do this, they can map out how they're going to get there and they can do it. But fear, I think, is the biggest thing that holds people back from actually pushing themselves really quite hard, and that is perpetuated by other people's opinions on that fear. Like you, you'll have had it, you'll have had people probably say that oh, an IMA'd never be achievable, or only like this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day. All it is is becoming competent in zone two and not running out of fuel. Like, yeah. anybody can do that with the right approach, but it depends on how you want to approach it, what time you want to go. Again, it comes back to goal setting first and then planning afterwards. And the partnerships thing is key. Like, I don't want to say like I stand out, but I've gone in, I've gone at things accidentally from a very different angle. And that's kind of opened up doors for me that I never thought mm-hmm. would open up. Um, so, it's, yeah, it, you've got to be different, I guess, don't you?
0: With your. So when you were transitioning to becoming like a hybrid athlete from the powerlifting, a lot of drive behind that was because of men's mental health and suicide prevention from from what I know from you anyway. Can you just dive a little bit more into like your personal story?
2: Yeah, so I'll, um, I'll ramble, bear with me. I'll try and give context just because I think it's always important to paint the picture because it actually maps out where I could have done things differently, Mm -hmm. which is where people now with that knowledge might not need to go on to the next worse off step. So I went to, I went to a really good, well, I was expelled from my first school in Scotland just for, I wasn't a naughty kid, but I was just the no effort disruptive because I was like falling asleep in class. Just so disrespectful in the sense that I just showed no effort to the reciprocal effort that was being given to me. And um, it just got to the point where I was, a nuisance because i was so consistently in the way for the rest of the class and then went to a different school um whereby i actually learned how to learn really started to enjoy it good good group of friends and actually developed quite quickly went from being a kid that wasn't going to university to being an oxbridge candidate put all my eggs in the basket of going to oxford and just worked my ass off for my final two years to try and do that didn't get in ended up going to durham and ended up finishing school with all these little trivial accolades like most likely to most likely to be a millionaire, most likely to marry a supermodel, all these stupid little things that meant absolutely nothing on the surface at the time. But what it did subconsciously is it made me feel like there was this expectation on me. And I didn't get into Oxford. I went to Durham instead, which was the first little like, oh, you've kind of fallen a little bit short of where you wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. I turned up to Durham and my logic had always been go to the best university that you can. doesn't matter what city it's in. N- enjoyment is completely trivial in comparison to The prestige of the university Mm. and i hadn't even looked at durham before i went so i chose the college based on the fact it was self-catering because i wanted to monitor my calories and stay jacked basically turned up and entirely to my left was a block of chinese postgraduates the block below me were all girls from within 15 miles of the university the floor above me were all people that had done a year of unit, no, a gap year, a year at a different university, and then dropped out. And then the floor above that were all postgraduates. And my floor was basically everybody else. So it was just like misfits, lovely people I was yeah. with, but they weren't, I knew very quickly they weren't going to be friends for life. And then a bit of a bitterness started where all my friends were having a great time at uni. Other people at uni were getting on really well. And I was like, I worked my arse off to get here. And I'm the one that's paying the price. Mm. And my course, again, I, I chose to do theology and religion at university because it improved my chances of getting into Oxford, not because it's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I was playing a numbers game. Yeah. And then on my course, about 80% of the course were like their community was scripture union, which I'm an atheist. I, I wasn't, I, I was studying theology and religion out of interest of the concept and its cultural implications rather than being religious. Mm-hmm. So they had their community, which I didn't fit into and there was nobody else really on my course. So within about a week, I was like, ugh, everybody's got their thing and I don't fit and everybody expects me to fit. What's going on? Tried to start a powerlifting, weightlifting club, but there was no space in the gym. So I had to travel like an hour out of Durham to get my training done. So what was, do you mean there's no space in the gym? So they've got a performance gym, which was reserved for the performance teams. Yeah. So the, like the upstairs gym didn't even have squat racks. It was all machines. Like the, the university gym did not have squat racks yeah. when I started, whereas Strange. they had a Leco kit all downstairs if you're in the first 15 rugby, for mm-hmm. example. Mm. So I was told there was no space, and then all of a sudden I'd gone from being this ambitious, sociable young man to being surrounded by people with no mates, no way of training with people, no way of interacting with people. And from that point, it just started to steadily spiral, and it was very quickly that having retrospectively been diagnosed, I became quite depressed. But I didn't do anything about it because I was so, so determined not to let down people's expectations of me and the expectations I had of myself. So I kept it to myself for ultimately 18 months, but I decided to live in Newcastle in second year, because I would rather be with people in a different city than be on my own in my university city because I just craved a bit of human interaction again. And that was actually okay for a little while until exams rolled around in like sort of spring 2016. And then everybody started revising for exams. Students do this weird thing where they don't do anything during the day and then just do all-nighters and everybody was on different timetables. So I didn't see much of my friends at Newcastle that I was living with. I didn't have any more friends in Newcastle because I'd always felt a bit weird being the outsider and I was in this depressed state. So my social interaction was kind of repressed. Mm -hmm. I felt like a weird guy. I just, I just became very self-destructive and my sole priority was not revealing that to anyone. Mm -hmm. So things became even more isolated really suddenly and the logical thing to do would have been open up about how I'd felt. But this fear just started to get worse and worse and worse about being exposed as less of a man, vulnerable, a failure, all these obvious, bullshitty, traditional, masculine traits. And then a week passed. It must have been mid-April. A week passed where I realized I hadn't said a word out loud to another human being other than like a Tesco cashier or a barista or something like that. Oh, thank you. One, train to one ticket to Newcastle, please. Like those little interactions. I hadn't had an actual tangible human interaction with another human being for a full Sunday to Sunday. And at that point, everything becomes a bit blurry because I just went into this spin of really, really negative, destructive conversations inside my own head. I remember pacing up and down my room, just wanting to phone my mum just so I could like have a, another human voice on the end of the phone, but didn't want to phone my mum in case it revealed that I was suffering. So didn't phone my mum because that was more important to me than being exposed as weak and vulnerable was more important, was hiding that was more important to me than actually the situ- getting out of the situation I was in, which is just so ridiculous to say now.
1: Do you know during that time as well, sorry, were you still going to the gym and train? Or- yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So the, the irony is, I think training allowed me to suffer for a lot longer than I otherwise would have done because training was the only thing I had. So I was traveling an hour each way to a gym in Benton in Newcastle um, five days a week and I was there for two, three hours and that was, that was the only part of my day that I looked forward to. And then having been a bloke that previously ex-rugby player, Previously, used to think mental health was just a figment of imagination, an excuse for people to avoid responsibility or a way to label themselves when actually they're failing and that depression wasn't a real thing. Suddenly, I couldn't squat 100 kilos. I could barely, I wasn't sleeping. If I did sleep, I'd sleep for like two days and sleep through alarms and just go off grid without even realizing what was going on. And then it became physically manifested and it became overwhelmingly real. At that point, things became so desperate. I mean, I say again, it was blurry, but I was just so lost and it there there was like a decision made where it was like you need to either expose not expose that's how it felt at the time anyway, but reveal this yeah. is the way you're feeling or take matters into your own hands and I can't remember my thought process really, but I can't remember the date either I kind of effectively not block it out, but the context around it's all the same, which is blurry either side but it was may i think it was May tenth something like that where I got a message from my mom at six thirty two with an article from a newspaper saying that a girl had passed away because there had been peanuts in her curry. I'm allergic to peanuts. She was sending me this article to be like, please be careful, which translates to I'm your mother, I care about you. Yeah. Below that was, just be careful, Fergus. How's life with the boys in our family WhatsApp group? My brother said, yep, yeah, all good, thank you, doing this, doing that. And I said, I'm fine. How's life with everyone else? Two hours later, I grabbed as many opioids, as, as just as many drugs as I could get my hands on, chinned a litre of um, spirits and just hoped to I, I don't want to I didn't hope to die this is what I learned actually I learned this on the Roman Kemp documentary when he was asking me questions about it I didn't consciously make the decision to die I just wanted peace from my own head and I've successfully blocked out what the actual implications of that were going to be so I didn't think because then if I acknowledged that that would be me leaving behind family friends that I did have they just weren't immediately accessible and I convinced myself otherwise so priority number 1 was peace nothing else was important and that's how I think I actually went through with the decision because now you hear people asking how can they make this decision when families left behind etc cetera, etc cetera. it's where the whole misconception of suicide as a selfish act has come from and as some people still feel that way which is mm-hmm. the wrong way to feel but it it that comes from you are leaving something behind and it was the, the documentary, again, where Roman's friend that passed away, his mom said, the pain isn't taken away, it's just transferred. And I kind of winced when she said that on the documentary because I thought that some people will interpret that as suicide as a selfish act. But all it did for me was it made me realize, actually, I hadn't considered what was being left behind out of what I felt was necessity. I, I, I genuinely saw no other way. I, I, could, I just couldn't cope with the, the chaos inside my own head for any longer as a young man who was meant to be doing this, meant to be doing that, meant to have achieved this by this point, meant to have achieved that by that point. And because I hadn't, and because I'd let myself feel this way for so long, I was therefore a failure. And because I'd mapped my life out so far in advance, I, didn't, I, I couldn't see past the immediate state I was in. And that got to the point where the peace, I don't wanna say death, but peace seemed like the only option. And the delivery mechanism for that was a suicide attempt. So from that point onwards, I kind of went into recovery. This isn't what I could recommend for everyone, but a couple of days later, I got a message from one of my best mates saying, I'm getting a puppy from this list next week. You in? My brain just kind of went like, fuck yeah. Like I just, I saw this message come up. I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I need. Because I, I didn't see a puppy. I saw responsibility. I saw structure. I saw a life to care for. I saw a reason to exist. Most importantly, it was a heartbeat. It was just something to exist with, some, a, a companion to exist alongside. A week later, I had a 14-week-old French bulldog in my hands. I was walking him up and down the street, and Geordie's was just saying, hello. Like, it wasn't deep psychoanalysis, but I was just speaking to people again. And that slowly started to build a little bit of confidence where I could leave the house for more than just necessity. I'd then sit and work for my exams in the coffee shop. I'd have him on my lap so he didn't piss on the floor. And then a family had come in and after a while I got to know the family and they'd walk him at lunchtime whilst I was doing my work. And I had these interactions again, slowly over time, he allowed me to come far enough back to being myself to actually confront and acknowledge what I had gone through. And then I was just out walking him and started saying things that made me quite emotional. just talking to a dog as people Mm -hmm. do, but he obviously wasn't talking back. He's not that clever. He's not that clever at all, actually, but (laughs) he... He was the catalyst that allowed me to understand my own experience to then be able to be comfortable with it, to then understand what to do next, to then see me through to Christmas. So a whole six months later where I actually told my parents and it wasn't because I felt comfortable telling my parents. I still hadn't told anyone what I'd been through. Just the first time you... Yeah, yeah. Water. And um, I, I, what I should have mentioned as well is actually when I came around from the suicide attempt, li- I was literally... It was it was just, uh, to be graphic, it was just disgusting. I was just in a puddle of my own vomit having... I was still heavily, heavily intoxicated as well. Like I couldn't move. My eyes were open. My brain was working, but I couldn't do anything with them. So I was just You couldn't move at all? Couldn't move at all. I was like completely comatosed. I was just sitting there. Do you remember what you'd done? Uh, Yeah, it came back to me slowly. And I started, I was, there there were footsteps outside my door. So like I was in there, but no, no, like the way we were operating at the time as a household. And we just, everyone was doing their own thing. Yeah. So I was like present, but unable to move. And the first feeling was rage and f- failure because the one initiative I'd taken to improve my situation hadn't come off. So I thought, you've done all this, you've done all that, and you've actually done something to try and fix this and it hasn't worked, you useless bastard. It was kind of the way I felt. And then I started to realize that that was ridiculous. Then I got the message and then things improved with Odie. But my mum had never wanted a dog. We'd always jokingly been like, oh, I was going to get a dog one day and spring it on you. And then that actually happened. So she was faced with the Fergus, why is there a dog in the house at Christmas? What's going on? You've snaked us all here. Mm -hmm. And then I actually explained through necessity rather than choice that that's why he was there. And um, that then allowed me to kind of enjoy the next couple of years. I really enjoyed my third year at university. Had a really close group of friends I'm still really good friends with now. But it allowed me to reclaim my own sense of self and then just enjoy being happy for a few years. And then to round back to your question, we, well, I, we, me and OD, weird, never done that before. <laughs> um, I was living in London. I'd just finished Heineken's graduate scheme. I'd been working in the London team as a full-time role just because it was, my dad had worked in the beer trade his whole life. Didn't really know what I wanted to do when I finished university. I was just happy to be existing yeah. cont- with content for the first time in a while and did the graduate scheme full-time role and then I was caught between a few like procedural things that weren't allowing me to do my job effectively and was starting to piss me off a little bit because I was kind of a bit cut off at the kneecaps and my job had become very box ticking rather than actually fulfilling mm. and then I remember opening my laptop one day in a in a cafe in Brixton it was I think it was called stir cafe sold to my brownie flat white I remember it really well I opened my laptop and it was just like this blast of white noise in my face not from the device but just Mentally, just like shut it, like out of panic, and I immediately thought, "Fergus, you dickhead, just get on with it." And then thought, "Actually, no, you've been here before. You know what this feels like. Don't do what you did last time, which is just bottle this down, try and crack on, and see where it ends up, because you know where it ends up. You don't want to be there again. You've you shared it with people. You don't need to go through that again." So I thought, "You need what? What were you missing last time you felt like this? A sense of purpose. Okay, therefore find one. What are you good at?" was good at squatting. I just squatted 260 kilos in competition. I was like, okay, squatting, sense of purpose. Where do we go from here? Charity. People do stuff for charity. That might be valuable. Uh, rugby, Movember, it's kind of cool because it's got a cult following. Mm-hmm. The Movember mustache, they've got t-shirts and stuff, which doesn't make it as like obviously charity focused. It's kind of cool, which kind of masks it a little bit with yeah. my logic. And then looked at what the global suicide rate was did some maths and decided that afternoon to try and squat half a million kilos in 24 hours to represent the half a million global male suicides each year, messaged somebody saying, I need somebody to coach me for this message. November, got on the film with them the next day and just started this campaign to just try and do this thing to give me a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment, some training direction and basically stop me slipping back towards depression. Cause I knew what it felt like. And then Attempted that on the 12th of December in 2018. So training for that was where like the, the hybrid stuff really started to ramp up specifically. I was 129,000 kilos in, about five hours deep or something. I was ahead of schedule. It was like 2,200 reps at 60 kilos deep. And then I uh, slightly tore my MCL and sprained my oh, patella tendon. So, but then again, I was lying on the floor, crying my eyes out at three in the morning. And there were like... Tss, 600 people on a live stream on YouTube at three in the morning. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are these people up on a school night? And just messages of support being like, look, actually, this was never about the physical challenge because throughout that process, when I started the challenge, I had no intention of sharing my personal story. I just wanted to talk about men's mental health and suicide prevention conceptually. And I had so many messages from my friends, their friends, mutual friends, connections family members with sons, et cetera, saying this is really important that you're doing this. And I was like, why are so many people saying this? Maybe, maybe, Fergus. You're not the only person that's felt like this in the past mm. and you're not a freak, you're not unique. And then two weeks later, I spoke to somebody at November, and I was like, look, I'm actually, I think I'm I think I'm think comfortable sharing the real reason why I'm doing this. And they helped me draft a bit of a press release just to sort of concisely, I mean, it wasn't like it was going out to press or PR really, but it was just, it helped me, con- it helped me contextualize what I wanted to say without it becoming... That me, without giving me a way to sort of half start and then scale back, which is what I'd done up until that point. And then just put up my personal Facebook, started an Instagram for the event and just said, look, this is why I'm doing it. And that just blew it up in my immediate social circles. I think I'd raised 15 grand before I'd even started, finished on 25 and a bit grand, ended up squatting in front of Twickenham Stoop Stadium in about 12,000 people. Just, just said yes to absolutely everything, just went mental, left my job. Um just decided I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because this is this feels important. Mm-hmm. And it was just before it was just as online men's mental health conversations were really starting to pick up and I feel I just hit it at a good time, whereby in my immediate circles, it really opened it up. So my friends now are much more open with each other and that's had a bit of a ripple effect. But all it's done is it gave me the most importantly, when I was injured on the floor, it gave me the confidence that people are willing to tackled this head-on, which previously was, oh, no, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about suicide. Men's mental health, shut fuck up. What are you mm-hmm. talking about? Come, man up and crack on. Just this sort of black tie suited rugby boy, football, military, weird, traditional, men aren't allowed to be emotional or stressed, bullshit that is actually just a hindrance to everyone's productivity. And then from that point onwards, everything else has happened along the way. But the, the, the first charity challenge I did came out of Slipping back into de- depression, deciding you've made mistakes that other people don't need to. Share those mistakes, share those lessons, do something stupid along the way that you enjoy. And kind of here we are is the summary. But I think um,
1: those are the main details covered off. But
0: God, it leaves your speech.
1: Less. Uh, is this what led you into then doing the triathlon events? Cause, because you got into the real... Yeah. Well, funnily enough, this is, this is dumb as well. But I So knee was done. I had two,
2: three weeks where I was waiting for... um diagnosed whether I needed surgery or not and that was kind of make or break and I was told I didn't need surgery I'd be able to get back on a bike in like five or six weeks and this was end of December so I was like, right, I can swim what can you do you can swim you haven't swum in years Fergus just get in a pool and see how it feels oh, It feels like shit you can probably improve that though did like a couple of days of swimming and I was like right triathlons you can swim you can swim and I'll be back on the bike by then and then I should be running with by this point, so Ironman Lanzarote, April 2019 was the obvious choice. So I signed up oh on, w- on crutches at the time <laughs> and then just got in the pool. Like I couldn't even push off, my knee was still like so delicate. So i just improved my swimming volume, improved my swimming ability, was back on a watt bike in February, then running in March. And I had no intention of, it wasn't even a charity thing, it was just I, I, I want to translate the lessons learned and the things I developed throughout the first charity pr- process. So that I've got a midpoint between this and the next charity mm-hmm. challenge. So did Ironman Lanzarote, Tough day out. Tough day out. That on what was like eight weeks of proper prep, really having never done a triathlon before. Mm-hmm. Just because again, it had given me the confidence that fuck it, just sign up and see what happens. Just get some skin in the game, and then, yeah. then that will carry you forwards. And that's exactly. I think it was four, just under fifteen hours. My first Ironman was. Um, but 90 odd kilos 2,600 metres of gain you know what Lanzarote is like it's mental yeah. how,
0: how was the Ironman Lanzarote because this is the one that I was looking at oh,
2: it's a great course but it's, 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 very, hilly. it's very flat
0: oh oh, oh, oh very <laughs> it's flat. very flat
2: no, no the, uh, the 70.3 might be flat but the winds the wind's a joke the yeah wind, the, it, it, my the, dad the, did say that yeah the, the wind's horrible and also quite hot what uh, did you do at a ru- time the, of year no it's is it April or May it's May I think Does say April yeah it's May yeah. Um, there's a few bits that were blisteringly hot and they, they cover you in a, when you come out of the swim, they put, they, there's people with buckets that put sun cream on for you. And one guy just missed a little bit down my tricep oh. down the left, so I've got like a, a just a little strip, like a little tiger mark down the left, where I'm just severely burnt for the rest of my life. So every time I get a bit of a tan, it just flares <laughs> up. Really? So that whoever you are, you <laughs> the, the man that suncreamed yeah. me badly, <laughs> maybe I should have just sun-creamed myself. But it, it's a it's a good it's an amazing event. Like Iron Man, when you turn up and you've spent your money, you're like, how oh, no, on earth is this 750 quid? And yeah. you turn up, and you're like, all oh, right, okay, that's yeah, how it's 750 quid. But it's a great, it's very hilly, very windy, but very rewarding. I mean, it's just, you get to the top of a headwind and be like, yes, tailwind, turn around, you'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) Another headwind. (laughs) How does that even happen? Um, But so that's how I got into triathlons because it was like, it was the only thing I could train for. And I knew if you can't train, you're in trouble here. So so let's find a way to fix that. And just chose the most obvious thing at the time. And it it was purely because of the calendar. Like maybe I would have done a 70.3 first if it worked with the calendar. But I thought, just crack on. And then I knew, I say again, the, the confidence I was given from the first charity campaign made me think you can do it again. So the following November, I set a plan in motion and thought you can't go bigger than part one because part one was madness, you fool. And then decided to do three in three in the month. So first of November, I lunged 6,890 meters, bodyweight lunged, which I believe is the furthest anyone's ever bodyweight lunged, very niche sport. How did, um, how did the
1: gluten hamstring feel after that?
2: Absolutely ruined, mate. And you know what the worst thing was? That, that run from Glasgow to Edinburgh was the weekend before. So you know Total Fitness in Prenton? Yes. I did every Friday for about 12 weeks. I built up to 6,000 metres on Fridays. And I actually got to the point where like I was finishing work and not having enough time to continually lunge until Total Fitness closed on a Friday night. Well, how long was it taking? Were you just
0: lunging around the gym?
2: I was just lunging around the 200-metre track continuously. Were
0: people were just like, what's he doing?
2: Yeah, yeah. Just And there were people that were in constantly being like, you're here lunging every fucking week. Yeah, what are you, are you doing? doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I never actually, I, I kind of half explained it to a few people, but I had a real rhythm, which was 20 lunges, 10 seconds off. I just did that for hours, like hours. And then um, it came to the actual 6.8.90. And I had like a time in my head that I knew I'd be able to do. But I was tanked from the weekend before because it was the only way we could make the training yeah. work for the ultra at the end of the month. So I it took me like four hours, I think. But anyway, 6,890 metres to represent 6,890 uh, suicides in the UK and Republic of Ireland the year before. The 17th, I organised a 13-man, 13-hour workout at WIT in London to represent the 13 male suicides every day in the UK relative to the stats at the time. That was class. We raised like 15 grand in a day, so just got a bunch of lads together to just build on the premise that you you're not alone and that we'll fight through this together for 13 hours, just play on that theme. And then the 29th and 30th, midday to quarter past 10, ran from Loch Lomond to Edinburgh. So three in the month. Wow. And I think that year, so I raised nine hundred in year one, and then it was like 33 that year. So incrementally building, but That's again, incredible. broadened rather than went bigger. Because mm. if you tear your MCL and sprain your patella tendon in year one, you can't really go much bigger yeah. without just kamikaze yourself, really.
0: <laughs> and then you did the, I can't describe it properly, but you did Ben Nevis, but the height of yeah. Everest. Or, uh, no, or no, it was, it was? A marathon.
2: Was the intention? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what? What came after that? So then I started. Then I started a job in London where I was commuting Monday to Fr- Monday to Thursday. I was in London. Monday, yeah. So January through March 2020, it was uh, started a job that was Monday Thursday in Edinburgh. So I was traveling down on the Monday morning, back up on the Thursday, and training for the Keltman, which is an extreme triathlon in Scotland uh 3.4k swim in 10 degree water and loads of jellyfish. Sounds ideal. It's fantastic. Very ideal. It's I freak out the first time you see jellyfish and then you realise that you actually can bat them away and they're
1: fine. Really? It, it, I, that's my big fear. You know, swimming. It's
0: only the tentacles that sting
1: you. But what have you to? Uh, You're,
2: in neoprene. you're okay. in neoprene. It's only your face that's exposed. So don't don't headbutt them and you'll be fine. Might be hard. To be fair, we're in the northwest. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Then 202k on the bike, 2,200 meters again, and again, mad amounts of wind, mad amounts of wind. Um, And then marathon over two Rose, which are mountains over 900 meters in Scotland. So it was a big, big day out. Started training for that, was managing to make it work whilst working a job in London as well. So it was basically doing all my intensity Monday, Thursday, Friday was a big gym session, Saturday was my big endurance day. Then COVID happened, so we went back to my family house in Hoylake where my brother and I built a gym a few years earlier and then realized I'd got all this aerobic capacity, all this speed work and all this strength work under my belt. Then the 500 pound squat and sub five minute mile thing started to reappear on the internet. I was like, I'll do that at some point. I'll do that at some point. And then somebody said they were going to do it. And I thought, well, if somebody's going to go for it, this might well be the time to pivot, to give it a go. And then just set the wheels in motion, phone my coach being like, right, I think by the end of August, I need to cut this off for what's coming in November can we do this in 12 weeks? Like, can we sacrifice this different training focus in 12 weeks? And he was like, oh, it's not ideal, but yeah, let's do it. So then just went hell for leather to get after that. It Mondays were brutal, man, just heavy squats straight in the car to Ellesmere Port race uh, track, where it was still closed. So me and my brother were hopping the fence every Monday night. It was class though. We had the, <laughs> we had the track all to ourselves, just drones flying about the place. It was, it was, it was brilliant. But, um, yeah, non-private tracks are pretty pretty shit now. Having had a couple months of that, but every Monday was just heavy squat, really hard intervals. And honestly, this they are soul destroying. Like I think the worst session I had was it was like a it's like a a mile predictor test. I, I give this to a lot of athletes. So you've got four by four hundred meters at your desired mile pace or just above. So for me at the time it was uh, four by four hundred meters at one fifteen with sixty seconds rest between the 115s, fifties, mm-hmm. five minutes rest four by 400 meters at 110. So you, you negative split the four by 400. And honestly, that, that, the penultimate 110, throwing up everywhere, was on the floor like a limp fish. So I had like 15 seconds before I got up and got up and then just managed to bash out. Well, it was 111 I bashed it out in, but I was I was on the floor for like 10 minutes being like, that's a training session. And then for like two weeks after that, my intensity was just ruined. Couldn't really recover from anything because I'd, I'd like peaked and then kind of came down a little bit and then got the 500 pound squat and some five minute mile done in the same day. And because the American had done it one week previously and been the first person to do it, I tried to run 50K afterwards, a sub five hour 50K afterwards. But if anyone's seen the video, what achieving a sub five minute mile did to me physiologically was mental. I really? Was, oh, throwing up, like I collapsed. Oh, yeah. I didn't collapse. I tripped over the line and then chose not to get up. But I went to stop my watch and because I was in spikes, tripped and hit the deck over the line so imagine I'd done that like five yards five yards earlier it would have been bad so 458 mile at about 11am after squatting at 9 I was on the floor for half an hour with the most splitting headache like I couldn't. Like, people kept trying to pull me up and I, like, my body was just like lay down I was just, just f- completely exhausted full of it's, lactic just
0: like, shut down just,
2: like, yeah completely down. full of lactic for like half an hour and I was driving everyone back to Edinburgh and then it started to calm down a little bit and I was like right no way Am I running a 50K now, you yeah. stupid people, shut up. Drove people back to Edinburgh, dropped off the squat rack that I'd borrowed because this gyms weren't open, so I'd have to borrow a squat rack and calibrate plates to take yeah. it to a gym over the water. It was a nightmare. And then I kind of was eating a sandwich and I was like, oh, I think I've got it in me. And then just got some food on board, <laughs> just set off at about three, two or three, I think it was. Um, And I got, I was on pace for three hours and then I started cramping, physiologically. I think my body was like, what is happening? What is happening? Because I started cramping in my hip flexes and my adductors, like places I'd never cramped before. And I was like, is this salt? I was having salt tablets. I was getting everything on board. And then after a while, I was like, I think this is just my body telling me to fuck off. Mm. Um, So I dropped off the pace at about 35K and then... Held, held on to just over a marathon, so I did like 44K just because I had to get back to the car that was picking yeah. me up. Um, so it was a 500-pound squat, sub-5-minute mile, and a marathon in the same day. But it was meant to be a sub-5-hour 50K, but I did the marathon like five o oh something So it was a slow marathon, but yeah. I was minced. Um, and then we went into Project Vertical, which was the world's first attempt at a marathon up the way. Obviously, that's where my brain goes when thinking of <laughs> thinking these things. I was like, Ross these pulled, pulled a car for a marathon. People have swam marathons. Has anyone ever done one Vertical. vertically? Yeah. yeah. So I thought, it's the same premise as Everesting, whereby Everesting, for those who don't know, is you accumulate the height of Everest. It's normally on a bike, but people do do it on feet, on foot, which is eight eight, eight four eight meters. You do it on a bike or on foot and you, you go. And the rules are you can't sleep. You can use things to like, get you, like cable cars or snowboards, to get you down if needed.
1: Who the fuck sets these rules, by <laughs> the way? What? Absolute Mate, th- this is the point. Horrible, right? the, the, horrible man. The,
2: there's then subcultures where it's like, yeah, oh, he slept though, doesn't count. Whereas we thought, okay, we're just going to, we, we budgeted and allowed volunteers for 11 days, and we were hoping to finish on the 11th of November at 11 a.m. to honor Memorial Day. Um, because we had a lot of support from the special forces, military community to help pull the project together. We actually yeah. had one of the one of the SBS as like the logistics manager for it. So we were hoping to finish on that day. Day one, we were scheduled to start at midnight and do four ascents and descents of Ben Nevis. We arrived and it was 90 mile an hour wind. It was minus 18 at the top. And we were like, right, we're actually going to start at 6 a.m. rather than midnight and just try and get as many done as we can. Day one it was, we had to go out and it was storm Dennis in, in November 2020 it was storm Dennis we went out in so we got to the top and it was minus 18 90 mile an hour winds came down we were burst went up again Johnny who I was doing it with then had to rescue somebody um, from three quarters of the way up Nevis down so Johnny came down and on day one had hypothermia because he was bringing somebody down I got to the top and we got to the, the bottom of day one having day one was the day that we were meant to like break the back of it and then settle into two yeah. twos every day and we'd absolutely sent it just to get two done. And it was a proper like, oh shit, <laughs> moment.
0: How long's that taking you to get up and get back down?
2: So we were four and a half for number one and then five for number two. And then that basically became steady fives to sixes throughout. But day two was just dealing with how battered we felt. Because I think what, what, what got, got us really bad on day one was we were both really confused on day two why we felt so bad. But once we got beyond, for anyone that's done Nevis, there's like zigzags that start and then you get yeah. to a plateau. When you get to the plateau, you're just exposed. And every step with our poles was like plant and then battle the wind. So every time we took a step, we were like wrestling with the wind on our joints. So like really planting ourselves. And I was like, Johnny, your fucking ligaments absolutely shit." <laughs> he was like, yeah. I was like, why? <laughs> and then we, on the mountain later that day, we were like, oh, it's probably actually the wind, like stabilizing in the wind for so long. And then day two, I can't remember day two, but day three, there was a huge dump of snow. So it took us six hours to get up oh, and down because so we were up to we were up to our hips at one point. It was it was, it was good fun. It was one of those beautiful days the mountain I've had. There was nobody else up there with us. We had a lot of chat. It was great. And then day three, we started to realize, actually, we've fallen off the pace here. The whole point of this project is to build on the concept of, the, the, the sort of catchphrase for the project was climb your own mountain. So yes, there was a physical challenge that we were taking on, but the whole premise was playing on the theme of the mountain, climbing your own, like the false summits, peaks and troughs, all the metaphors you want to throw at it and just playing on that theme. And we just decided actually our egos and the athletes in us want to just send it and figure this out. But the bigger part of this is adapting and adjusting to the plan that we set out because ultimately setting a plan and not not adapting it as I went was what caught me out with my depression. Mm -hmm. So we realized on day three, the best thing that we could do was just continue to show up every day and do the best that we could. And that basically turned into two a day. So we 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 got into the habit of sort of four and a half, five hours. We're, our alarms went off at 3 a.m. every morning. We were downstairs for breakfast being forced down us. It got, got to the point where Johnny was, someone was like, Johnny, drink your fucking green smoothie so you get some micronutrients. He like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I'd see him go to the bathroom just outside the kitchen. I'd just go around and <laughs> sit, sit, see, see him pouring it into the sink. Sh- but we had this weird solidarity where we were both so, like we had people managing us. And We were just like snaking them because we didn't. <laughs> we we we'd employed these people to manage us, and we were like snaking underneath them to try and catch them out. So we were we were out we were out four thirty and on the mountain for five each day, and then it was like it was minus eight to ten each morning when we started because Fort William in November is not a warm part of the world. It was especially cold. Just getting going every morning was the hardest part. The hardest part of that project. So it was eleven days continuously. That was our routine. Our sole intention became get up the big hill, get back down the big hill, eat some food, go up again. Getting were out- you able to get enough food in? Uh, I think so. I was better than Johnny was because, but again, you start to get ulcers and you start to anything rough starts to wear down your tongue and you get flavour fatigue because if you have gels, that's a bit sweet. Yeah. So, and we never really knew what we were going to get. So like on a Tuesday, I'd, I'd come down and be like, I fucking need fish and chips. Get me fish and chips right now. I'm going to knock you out. Yeah. And the following day, somebody's like, Do you want fish and chips? And I'd be like, You what anything <laughs> and thinking nothing worse and that was like get, get me and then we had a roast dinner from m&s on like one day <laughs> you could just tell our body was like oh my god nutrients amazing yeah. so it was really tough like that but the the hardest bit was getting out of bed every morning but then once we got moving the whole premise and concept of the project started to unfold because we'd taken the first step we gave ourselves no option but to continue we were as a little group of mates group of blokes just talking openly honestly finding a way through our problems going up the hill figuring a way out, cracking on, doing what we needed to do, being open and honest as we went. Johnny and I had an ABC system where we knew we'd be sitting at a B most of the time. Sometimes we'd be in an A, like we'd get this beautiful sunset and we'd be like, this is absolutely amazing. Why don't we do this all the time? And then there'd be times where like, this is the worst fucking thing we've ever done. Why are we doing this to ourselves? We're in a C. And we're quite attuned whereby we can tell just by each other's faces and the way that we're moving what that person is. So we knew how to interact with that person if they were looking like they were going to slip into a C or if they were an A, just leave them to it. Um, So most of the time we were sitting at a firm firm B and that was the way that we communicated and communicated to the people on the ground as well. Mm. But it just became an exercise in cumulative effort, abandoning ego, doing the best that we could, acknowledging where we needed help, acknowledging where our strengths were, leaning on one another when we needed it and just being really vocal and honest about it as we went. We had um, we had a cookie jar of we had set up a Google Mail account for the for the project, which was basically can you just send in how you're interacting with the project so that if we're ever absolutely burst, we can dive into that and read mm-hmm. through it. And it went from hi lads, doing a great job, love seeing it, cheers, Brian. To somebody sent us two and a half thousand words. Oh my god, which is just incredible. And on day day three, I just was <laughs> doing everything I could to not get out of the car, being like, oh, just tie my shoelaces. Was a fuck. I was, just, I was just not wanting to get out in the cold. And I just opened one of those emails and I like, just read through two of them and I was like, oh, there we go. Because we'd manufactured this campaign around the premise and around the concept. Then, like hours and hours and hours of work had gone into like refining that concept and how we were going to message, make the messaging and the narrative. And then having people say that to us that it like worked for this person. having that tangible feedback. All about, of a yeah. sudden, I just I was like, fucking who cares if your tongue's a bit sore and you're in a bit of pain? Yeah. Just crack on, mate. Like it's, if, it, if if what you've set out to achieve is happening, then you're already winning. Just keep showing up and do yeah, what you can do. And then once we abandoned egos, it, there were points where it was fun. Like we we were. This was just as things were uncertain again with what was going to happen around Christmas, and we'd wake up in the morning, be looking out in the dark. Wind was howling. I'd be having a cook breakfast that I didn't want to eat, and there'd be six lads just pissing themselves laughing. One guy was editing photos. One guy was making breakfast, telling Johnny to eat his food. Johnny was trying to fuck it and feed it to the, the dog that he was probably hallucinating seeing down there. And we just like, this is the simple, simple existence where nobody's got an agenda, nobody's out to get one another, and we're just enjoying it. And um, the simplicity of it became really quite amazing and quite profound. Like There were moments we were on the hill, and we just stand there and be like, what What really actually fucking matters outside of this right now? Because the, the views on Nevis, if you get them, are incredible. We've, we, every time we got to the top, it was a different view. It was like it was a different mountain. And that's what was really amazing, because it wasn't. Mm. fucking never i haven't been up again probably <laughs> probably never will well again and, uh, i'll uh, grandchildren will be like did i ever tell you about that <laughs> um but that that was that was that campaign was a bit different where it wasn't built on the physical because the whole point is i don't want the physical challenges to be attached to me if there's a concept behind them i want the concept to be what shines through so the reason johnny came in was because the messaging was about fighting through yeah. challenges together and he was like well surely it makes sense to for somebody to suffer through it i was like well on your head, be it. If you're up for it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that was um, that was it, really. So the campaign landed well. We didn't. We fell short. We did thirty-one thousand or so meters out of the forty-two point two thousand we'd set out to achieve, but we ran out of time, money, and volunteers, basically. So we got to the eleventh day, and we felt like we would achieve what we wanted to. We'd raised forty-eight thousand pounds, wow, that's and had amazing. just under a thousand of those emails, which was, I mean, comments and everything on social media was great, but those emails were what I've started. I still dive into them every once in a while now just as a reminder because year round the challenge for me is i've got all these fitness things that are ongoing most of my charity work's been focused around november around that i find it almost a bit trite to talk about the mental health stuff as much as i do because in my mind all i have is a story to tell and a few lessons to learn and i've already shared them to death um but i'm not qualified to take on people's problems analyze them and give them information back so what can i really do consistently that isn't just the same stuff over and over again so i find myself in a bit of a you're not doing enough conundrum every once in a while, whereby I then check actually what I'm good at is building these campaigns on mm. a concentrated period of time, so that people can really buy into them and hopefully take something from it, which puts them in the right direction, rather than constantly putting stuff out that might not yeah. be as beneficial year round. Because I, I don't think I don't think there's much I can add from a content point of view. That the speaking that I've done in schools and corporates is great, but that's all behind closed doors. But from a social media perspective, my my focus is is campaign driven because i think it's got more of an interactive
1: tangible element i don't think it's ever not beneficial and this is one of the issues that i've had with some people who have spoken about the topic this week and it was it was kind of based it was a little bit different but it's based on the fact that some people believe that when people are talking about mental health that some people use it as almost like a a, lead, a leverage thing yeah, or like yeah, a popularity yeah. thing that and I I, I failed to see that and I don't believe that maybe that's because I have a bit more faith in humanity and people are, are opposed and stuff but but some people believe that and the issue that I have with that is, is is how are we supposed to how are we supposed to view that or how are we supposed to challenge it or, or what are we supposed to do with that because for potentially every couple of people who are maybe fake about it or, or using it to leverage things in that way there's there's hundreds, thousands of people who are in a hole with stuff and not opening up because people are making those comments as well, and and to put it in a really like I suppose horrible analogy, like if we were to say, well, there's ten people on a bridge. Let's just tell them to jump and see who, who's really being honest yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That that that's a very real life yeah. sort of way of looking at, it. and and what what are we supposed to do with that? Because there's there's people who then won't open up about stuff because then they feel like, well. Am I being fake with mine? Does do I really justify a a mental health issue? And it, it even made made me sometimes think about what I'd spoken about before, and 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 I think that's a, it's a, a bad way to go with things. Especially when I still don't think there's anywhere near enough awareness. I don't think there's enough people sp- people speaking about it. And I did pull up some stats before we came on the podcast because I know that you'd done a lot of things four numbers yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, especially for, for for male suicide and male mental mental health and it's like we've got the worst stats we have for like the last two decades there's there's thousands it's we're in the worst place we've ever been with for, for male suicides I think I was looking at the stats before I just got them on my laptop and it was i think 2019.
2: Well, there's a, there's actually a lag in the data because they've become so out of so control. Out of hope, Samaria, yeah, yeah. yeah so because of
1: COVID and stuff as well.
2: The Samaritans report is only so there's no data from Scotland in that report. Which yeah, it's only is like, England and Wales. Normally comprehensive, yeah, because yeah. because it's become a bit conflated and definitions have changed a little bit as well, which yeah. makes it difficult. So this is just
1: England and Wales, and it was that uh, suicide rate for men in England and Wales, 2019 was the highest been two decades. Male suicide rate was at 16.9 deaths per hundred thousand in 2019. There was. 5,891 suicides and again that's in England and Wales and men accounted for 4,303 of those deaths
2: yeah it's about 75% generally either side of that boundary but it's what what, a fair few things on that actually one is I agree that we should be somewhat skeptical with how people are talking about the messaging but a lot of the comments that you refer to come across as why even bother like, yeah. why even bother? And I think from my perspective, I don't know about you, but it's very transparent when somebody's actually talking about mental health mm. meaningfully and when they're just ticking a box. And there's a key distinction. You had Dr. Mike on the podcast recently, didn't you? We, 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 we've spoken about this before, where there's a key distinction between mental health and mental illness and yeah. the two in terms we of
1: like, we like this yesterday, yeah, yeah.
2: how they communicate is really cre- really key because mental illness is depression, anxiety, but people don't want to talk about that because it almost sounds like they're being lumped in the same category as something that's a little bit more medically prohibitive and demanding like schizophrenia mm-hmm. or stuff like that. But these, these are concepts that we need to understand better as a society. I
1: think even China, like I said, that's not even a mental illness anymore, haven't they? Schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah. It, they can't deal with it. Yeah,
2: correct, correct. It's, it's But it's a scary word. It's a scary word. And there's different, there's different derivatives of it which mean different things. But people think Gollum from Lord of Wings is schizophrenia that's dissociative identity disorder, but mm-hmm. it's just the pop culture around this stuff, which has made it difficult. And I find it, I I, I can see, I, I think anyway, when it's meaningful and when it's not in terms of social media stuff. And I have, like you, I've questioned, do, you, do will people, if I keep saying the same thing over and over again, will people just think of a broken record? That's just kind of leveraging it for commercial because now that works myself and it's not, it's not alongside full-time work. Will people think, oh, he's leveraged himself in this position by talking about these things? And to some degree, to some degree, it's been a part of the process. Yes, but equally, I put myself out there and share my story, warts and all, with the intention of just sharing things along the way. And a lot of things happen by accident. But my challenge is how do I how do I continue to contribute?
1: Well, you sorry, just to interject. The one thing that you've got to remember is you're picking up audience all the time who have never heard your message before exactly i i only met you a couple months ago and a lot of stuff i'd never heard of as well and yeah and this is why i wanted to get into the podcast because then there'll be our audience who have oh never God, heard God, things be before so, heard yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so i think like you can never ever repeat that stuff enough
2: exactly exactly but this is the that's where those sort of comments make me think oh what am, I, am i doing it the right way am i do i need to reinvent the wheel here or it's a tough one because the people that are, the people that are, the criticism you refer to that I see online in my mind are perpetuating the stigma because it's like you've said it's it's not it's no bad thing to be talking about it from a conceptual point of view but the meaningful conversations are the next step because a lot of my campaigns have been based around talking talking is not the only solution it's a fantastic starting point though mm-hmm. and the people it's been become quite designer to say oh we talking's all well and good but we need action and like okay well you're saying that, but you're not providing any tangible action off the back yeah. of that either. And talking can lead to action, but a lot of people aren't even at the stage where they're willing to talk yet. So the more that we can do that, the more action will actually happen as a byproduct of that. So my my view on it is it's just constantly breaking down those people to understand why is it important. It, it's, it, again, reducing the barrier to entry. I was so, so high up on my traditional masculine bullshit scale of why I couldn't talk about my mental health openly. Whereas now I'm at the other end of the scale where I'll happily tell a stranger at the pub that I attempted suicide in 2016, and Mm -hmm. these are the reasons why. And that might shock some people, but me having that conversation might make that person feel more comfortable when they're like, actually, maybe my mate Kev isn't feeling all that sharp. I'll, I'll talk to him about it. And the ripple effect is the most powerful thing, and the stats show that it's getting worse. Why is it getting worse? Circumstances are changing. The world's gone a bit mental, yes, but... It's very, very difficult to know how to have these conversations. And the problem with depression as a whole, I mean, I'm not experienced in talking about anxiety in any way. It's a concept that falls under the same umbrella largely, but depression is where I've got things to, to comment on to some degree. But it's completely irrational. And everybody tries to rationalize it. Everybody tries to rationalize what can't be rationalized, which is where we keep going in this loop. My understanding is I've always tried to understand my depression from the top down rather than the bottom up. And understanding from the bottom up is actually understanding what were the the steps that started to make me feel a certain way? What could I have done to go back the way? Or what steps did I then take to make me feel worse? And number one was I, fe- I felt isolated. That was step one. What could I have done? I could have gone to more efforts to de-isolate myself. Don't know if that's a word, but we'll run with it. And then rather than doing that, I remained isolated. That allowed me to start thinking self-destructively and compare myself to other people. I started comparing myself to other people. And in fact, I had a lot going for me. What mm-hmm. could I have done? could have spoken to somebody about the way I was feeling, they would have reminded me that I would have gone backwards. But instead, I got stuck in my own head and kept going, kept going, kept going. And then, at this end, when I was severely depressed, I can't rationalise anything. I'm just utterly miserable, to the point where I wanted to kill myself. Whereas society tries to understand it from here backwards rather than this way upwards. Yeah. When in reality, all you need to do is listen to the person because you'll help them maybe understand what were the things that they can do differently to track backwards towards that starting point. And understanding is just acknowledging that somebody's suffering rather than trying to piece apart, break apart what is making them feel that way. Because the, the iron is my therapy, exercise yeah. is my therapy crowd. It's not. Exercise isn't therapy. Exercise is a coping mechanism. For, co- for some people, the coping mechanism might be alcohol, it might be drugs. Yeah. For some people, it might be their dog. It could be anything. But we're all, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet in one way or another. But the only way we can actually break down what makes us tick is by being analytical with it. For some people, that might require medication. For some people, it might require thera- for actual medical therapy. For others, it might require just talking to their family once a week on the topic. But trying to rationalize what cannot be rationalized and trying to prescribe what cannot be prescribed, I think is the biggest stumbling block for modern-day society yeah. and understanding mental health. Individuality is the bread and butter of it when it comes to how we approach it. And I think that's where compassion is actually the sort of buzzword that underpins yeah. it all, and understanding that you're different to me, you're different to me. that's fine. so how do we treat each individual case for what it is rather than trying to put a paint by numbers approach to it
1: yeah I think I think dealing the approach that you've the approach that you've specified there is also a better way for people who are looking at potentially who have never had any mental health issues before because I think a lot of people or some people will look at when we have these weeks like mental health awareness weeks so or when they hear these kind of conversations, I think like, it doesn't really apply for me because I've never had any issues before. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I won't apply further down the line like we spoke about. Not everyone has mental health illnesses, but everyone does have mental health. And this is the this is where I really fucked up with it because I was never proactive with it. Yeah, I was never looking after those pillars and foundations that underpin my mental health. I was very reactive with it. And it's not like with, for example, just to use a health and fitness analogy again with it. It's not like, when you start to become physically unhealthy and you can go, okay, well, I've actually got bitch-tits and a bit of a man belly. I can can do something about that because I can see it. It's tangible. You can't see your mental health and it's very difficult to see or know that that's sliding down a rabbit hole until you reach a a pivotal point. And I got there. I never took any action with her, but I I had a conversation with Lucy about it one day where I was at that place where I just didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. And that seemed a better coping mechanism than just dealing with the day-to-day shit all the time and I went to see a therapist about it and spoke about this a couple of times in the podcast so I won't go too far into it now but it because I'd never listened to anything around mental health before and maybe been very naive of it I didn't know what those steps were I didn't realise how far I was sliding I didn't realise it was deteriorating because there'd been nothing really spoke about with that and, and working from that way forward how, how you spoke about or how that kind of journey start rather than looking at it from the yeah the opposite direction, if that makes sense. But I bet now, because
2: you've gone through that experience, you're much, much better at earmarking when you're going one direction or the yeah. other. Yeah. And that that's that's the crux of it really. That's why I think it's so important that you share your story, why I share mine, why others share theirs, because the familiarity is the biggest thing. The the thing that gave me confidence to continue just ending myself in the name of men's mental health was the fact that sticking my neck out that little bit further than others had done in my social circles to start with, made me and them realize that they weren't unique in their situation, they weren't freaks in the corner, they weren't isolated, and allowed them to start to develop a bit more self-awareness about that sliding scale. If somebody doesn't suffer from mental illness, that doesn't mean that they won't, that doesn't mean they're not susceptible to it, it just means that they're quite sort of static in the middle of said scale.
1: Or they protected their mental health up until this point.
2: Yeah, without even realising how they're doing it. If you've got a job that you love, if you've got a family that you love, if you've always been financially secure, if you do something that makes you fulfilled, if you've always been in good shape and can exercise and you're blessed with the ability to move, then it's probably easier to sort of fight through the challenges that come from a different situation. And that was another thing as well. As I always felt so guilty about the fact that I felt like this when other people were in much
1: worse situations than I was. That's a big one. I think. I think some people don't share because they don't think that they qualify to speak on that out Because my story is not as intense as your story. Correct. Or I don't deserve. Th- th- like it doesn't. People won't see the
2: maths add up that I should feel this way, and they'll yeah. just see me as oh, he's just a bit of a brat, or he's yeah. just why is he, does he expect he deserves more? He's yeah. entitled. All this stuff. But it's, in my mind, depression in modern day society in the Western world is largely a lack of fulfillment and a lack of belonging, largely. I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but...
1: I think, I think you're right. Jordan Peterson talks quite a lot about this, about just having a job and how much fulfillment comes out of yep. job, habits, routines, stability through the week.
2: Yeah, 100%. And But the, the, the inverse of that is having a job, if you're fulfillment driven, having a job that isn't fulfilling mm-hmm. and you spend the majority of your life doing something that isn't fulfilling you and then don't use the time that you have around the job to find fulfillment... Yeah. You're just cruising at a sort of altitude of nothing, really. Yeah. You're kind of going through the motions, you're paying the bills, but there's more to life than paying bills. Yes, that's a privileged thing to say in the sense that I can pay the bills, we can pay the bills, but there might have been times when that wasn't the easiest thing in the world. I've, I've had times, where I've, I mean, I put myself in a massive dot hole of debt paying for the first few campaigns with November. I've managed to sort of fix that over time, but it was a case of, there were there were points along the way where fulfilment, was more important. And it's, it's freed me now to do, be the best version of myself, which is a more productive version, more successful overall, however you define that term. I think that's key as well, is what is your defini- definition of success? Mine was previously, financially, prestigiously, job title, holiday, car, all the normal bullshit driven. Whereas having lived through a suicide attempt, it's all pretty meaningless. Yeah, there's still things that sort of are like, oh, that's cool. That's that's exciting. I appreciate that. But it's not the main driver. The main driver for me is how much time can I spend doing the things that I enjoy with the people I enjoy doing them? And to me, that's success. So that doesn't matter whether you live in Dubai on billions of quid a year or you live in Stoke in a one-bedroom house that you rent with a family that you love very much, but you get to spend all your time with them. To me, mm-hmm. those people are equally successful if they're equally fulfilled because you don't you don't take stuff with you when you die. Yeah. Everything that you live for is lived in your existence. So, making the most of your existence and finding fulfilment in that existence, I think, is the crux of what we get wrong as a society, and why fulfilment is the is the DNA that runs all th- yeah. runs throughout that. I mean that
1: that comparison works both ways. Like we just touched on, like people, the way that they measure su- success is very different, and where they get that from is is massively based on comparisons to other people. But equally, when we're talking about people who are potentially comparing their bad days or their mental health, to other people's and they don't think that they have the right to talk based on those comparisons is a big thing and i just want to say a massive massive thank you to you today for sharing all those parts of it but we have one of the biggest challenges you will ever meet this today is in this podcast this is the, uh, <laughs> this is i've seen this with end. matt yeah yeah
0: po- do we redo it or do we not get a chance no we, we don't nah, not we don't do it every we do week
1: it. because we just get a, a better score it's like uh, it's, that, it's that repetitiveness of it's, volume Do you know
0: what it says age 25 though and that's you're not twenty five.
2: I am. Yeah. I actually don't <laughs> know how to change age. it, so we're just
0: gonna have to leave it. <laughs> you just have to squeeze it.
1: Which hand? Can I hook? Can I hook? Can I hook grip it. <laughs> yeah. You can go both hands because Matt did both but hands. But what as Matt
0: well. was doing as well, he yeah. was pushing so, it on his chair. Yeah.
1: So you're like putting it down. Of course and, he does. And driving. Because so, Matt cheating. Matt never does anything properly, does he? No. If he, he, he finds no, a it, fucking it, it, sneaky little ratty way to do something, that's he'll do cheating. it. We, we had a squat I battle think.
2: on Monday where we were going to work up to heavier single. I did two thirty five. Then he did it for two. I was like, you.
1: <laughs> Anything to get one on
2: you. <laughs> yeah. And he finished it with a big smile. Say, oh, you know exactly what you're doing, don't
1: you? But right. Oh, hang on. On.
0: Just press. What
1: what, what what are the conditions? Down, up, just. So you can put it on your chair if you want to, because that's what Matt did. So he cheated with it. So now we've got to apply the same principles.
0: Oh, gosh. That's a very firm Very break. sweat
2: hand, very sweaty hands. Hang on. On set. Is that good to go? Sort
1: them out. Sort press of start. Got you. Yeah. I was say There wasn't much movement there. Yeah. It's oh. a, you don't. We don't get a massive amount of movement.
2: Oh, okay, fifty-nine point eight. I'm gonna try that again.
1: Yeah. So anyone who just watch, who's not who's just listening, what not watching on YouTube, Fergus is now 10 But if you're not
0: watching on YouTube, the, the get subscribed tests. on YouTube. You're making me sweat now, and I'm not even doing it. I didn't
2: realise how sweaty it was until I actually gave that a go there. But
0: oh, he's doing it on his thigh.
2: He's broken. Uh, one five six.
0: One what? five six. You're joking.
2: Oh, it's pounds, pounds, pounds.
0: Okay, what's one five six pound? That's actually quite. What,
1: was it in kilos last time? Uh, hang on, can I fix that? You can probably
0: convert. 70.9! I think you beat Matt.
1: What did Matt
2: get?
0: Matt got sixty nine. You beat Matt's first attempt. Okay,
1: okay. Matt topped out at seventy three. What did oh I get? My there? 71. Oh my goodness, seventy one. I'm gonna try again. So this is where you you quickly figure out people's masturbation hands as well. 74.1. 74.1,
0: you're at the top of the table. Somebody,
1: somebody get Matt on the phone. No joke, you need, <laughs> oh I will take a photo of that, quickly take a photo of it because then you can send it to Matt as well and say, fuck you Matt." the score. <laughs> oh,
0: my camera's not working. You got it? I got it. Evidential Fergus. proof There's proof
1: Fergus is now Top of the scoreboard the, the only caveat To that is I get to take it home And practice every single day That's true That's true <laughs> But um, yeah Massive thank you For today Fergus and sharing your story Because I think We had this conversation Before we jumped on the podcast That I think this will help A lot of people Even just from listening Listening to it And, and tuning in And having that relatability And being able to Take things away From, from dealing with it And, and have that From, from your side As well to, to kind of think they're not alone with stuff, and there is light at the end of the tunnel as well. That's it. That's it. And I think uh, self awareness
2: is the crux of it, really. And we can only learn that through trying new things and being honest with
1: ourselves. And where can people find more of you? Because I'm sure you're going to be doing some batshit crazy event coming up. Because don't you worry about? As you always (laughs) learn with people who who get into these endurance sports and big activities, yeah they always want to take it a step further correct correct more on that later
2: but yeah at Fergus Crawley on instagram and then just Fergus Crawley on youtube as well and, and then
0: you've got online coaching as well yeah that's
2: at omnia performance for anyone that wants to be hybrid and the same on instagram for them too
0: amazing honestly it's been incredible like we really really appreciate it so everyone who's watching or listening please yeah. share the podcast make sure you tag all three of us so we can share it and obviously this podcast will be amazing if it is shared to yeah. hundreds of people because it's so important what we have spoken about today and obviously what Fergus has touched on is massively. Yeah,
1: can important. I just say as well, anyone who's um watching on YouTube, whichever one it is, if you've got any questions that you want to fire into any of us or to Fergus, please feel free to do so. And the other thing if if, if you feel like you are struggling, you just want to reach out and put any comments in YouTube, um, although we can't give any direct advice to people. Um, if we can put you in the right direction of getting help or any support then we will do our best to do so as well
0: and just on that one we will leave links in the description for support lines mm-hmm. numbers websites i'm sure fergus has some that we can pop in mm-hmm. there as well for men's mental health specifically Indeed. but as always thanks so much guys
1: thank you see you next one